And today, uh, we are so blessed to have another guest speaker. Um, he is no stranger to us because he has spoken to us uh, for the past uh, three years already. And I consider him one of my mentors. He's actually my professor at the uh, Expositors Academy. And so uh, I'm really thankful to God for this brother. He has uh, enriched me in so many ways, not only with his teaching, but even with his life and with the character that he has displayed. So let's all warmly welcome once again in our midst, Dr. Tim Carnes. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Pastor Mel, for that kind introduction. The feelings are, are mutual. And uh, I will work harder not to run everyone away in the next class so we have more to graduate. But You know, as you were talking about uh, when you mentioned uh, guessing the title of your next book, that that is the first one that came to my mind. But another book idea came to my mind on parenting. You could call it I've Had Enough. So you keep that in mind. Give me credit if you, if you do that. Okay, so <laughs> sometimes it feels like that. You know, it's kind of funny, too. I was in a, a CDO uh, about a month or two ago, and someone came up to me and said, Are you Pastor Tim? And she said, I, I know you. I, I recognize you. And I said, Oh, really? She said, Yeah, you're on that video about Pastor Mel's book, uh, Enough is Enough, right? So I, I guess your book is making me famous, too. So, uh, But what a blessing. It is a, is a wonderful book, so I'm so glad that it's doing well. Um, and just would encourage you to get a copy if you haven't yet. This morning, I wanted to consider a topic that I think has probably touched each one of us to one degree or another, and it's the problem of discouragement, depression, uh, despair, anguish, despondency. Certainly, every one of us has probably experienced it to one extent or another in our lives. Some of you may be in a situation now where you're deeply discouraged, perhaps even in depression or a deep depression, and it was all that you could do to show up this morning here. Indeed, many of us have gone through periods in our lives, events that have taken place, situations that have come up, or just our own feelings where we are, are down, we're discouraged, and sometimes that discouragement can lead to something far deeper, lead us into a more dark place. And if that is you, then you're not alone. In fact, many heroes of the faith have suffered through times in their life of depression and discouragement. The great reformer Martin Luther, he suffered many bouts of depression, uh, problems with his health, constant fear for his life, ongoing conflicts that he had, attacks from Satan, struggles in the church. These often brought upon him what he called the dark night of the soul. And in fact, during one of these episodes in his life, he wrote to a friend these words, completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the storms of desperation. Or Charles Spurgeon, we saw a picture of him a moment ago. He struggled as well with depression in his life. He called them fainting fits. And they began around the time when he was in his early 20s. He had been invited uh, to preach uh, in um, the city of London and to over 10,000 people. And as he was preaching as a young man, someone yelled out fire. And there was a massive uh, chaos. There was uh, great confusion and panic. And seven people died being trampled to death. 
Pastor Spurgeon felt personally responsible for that, and he carried that through the rest of his life. His wife, Susanna, developed a major health condition that left her an invalid about 10 years into their marriage. Spurgeon himself suffered great health problems with gout and inflammation of the kidneys and rheumatism. He came to one point in his life where he said these words, Causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm it away by sweet discoursings. I might as well fight with the mist as with this shapeless, undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. And then there's Martin Lloyd-Jones, considered by many to be one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. He, too, struggled with discouragement and depression. In fact, under the, the, de- the uh, struggles of ministry, he would often find discouragement in those times where he needed to be alone. And based on his experiences, he preached 21 sermons on the topic of depression, which he later then put together into a book called Spiritual Depression, which I'd highly recommend. But think about this. Martin Luther, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, if these men, these heroes of the faith, those who loved God, those who trusted God, those who knew God and knew His Word, if those men could struggle with depression, then certainly we're not immune to it either. I've known many people, even pastors, who I spent time with, who have struggled with this. I can still remember in my first year in full-time ministry, it was the most discouraging time I've had in my life. Many of you are familiar with the feelings of discouragement. Wayne Mack, who was mentioned a moment ago, he described depression as discouragement to the point of hopelessness. And he said, it isn't just difficult to keep going, but it feels like it is impossible to keep going. And so we need to talk about this this morning. We need to address this topic. It is a real issue. It is part of the human condition. Depression, discouragement, it is a thing that, again, as I mentioned, we all will face or have faced or are facing now. And maybe if you have gone through it in the past, you fear those feelings may be coming back and you won't know how to cope with them. Or maybe you know somebody right now who is in the midst of a great discouragement or depression, and you're not sure how to help them. You're not sure how to to show them the way out. So we need to talk about this, not just so that we can help others, and not just so that we can be prepared if it comes in the future, and not just to avoid it or to know how to deal with it when it does come. There's an even greater reason, an even more important reason, that Christians need to deal with this issue of depression. Let me quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones who said this, Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. As we face the modern world with all its trouble and turmoil, with all its difficulty and sadness, nothing is more important than that we who call ourselves Christians and who claim the name of Christ should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution and here is the answer. He goes on to say this, in a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart, people characterized by a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. What he's saying is simply this, The reason Christians need to address and deal with and conquer depression is because it reflects upon our testimony, because it reflects on who Jesus is. 
In fact, this is the main issue. This is the real concern. A joyless Christian presents a powerless gospel. A joyless Christian presents a powerless gospel. So how do we deal with this issue then? How do we deal with depression? How do we address deep discouragement? What are we to do when that situation comes upon us? Or how do we prepare ourselves for the potential of it? Well, let's look to someone in the scriptures who's very familiar with this topic. Somebody who wrote often about it, wrote songs about it, poems about it, and experienced it in his own life. And that is none other than King David himself. So please turn with me to Psalm 13, where David will give us two responses for deliverance from depression. Two responses to move us from sighing to singing. David, again, was no stranger to discouragement. He experienced many trials and difficulties in his life. He was often on the run for his life. His family was once kidnapped. He struggled with the guilt and the consequences of adultery and murder. He lost an infant son. He had a daughter who was raped by one of his sons, and that son was then killed by one of his other sons, who then later tried to usurp the throne and take it from David. And then there was even another son near the end of David's life who tried to take the throne from him. So David knew great pain. He knew great suffering. Yes, some of it he brought upon himself, but not all of it. And so as we come to Psalm 13, we find David in the midst, in the middle of one of those trials. And in it he writes, and if you could please stand in honor of the word of God as I read from Psalm 13. David says these words, For the choir director, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider, answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. O Lord, in these moments, I pray, God, that you would give us instruction, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us. Lord, give us understanding of these words so that we might apply them to our own lives. We thank you that you prompted David to write this poem so that we might have it. I pray, God, you would use it not only to help us in times of discouragement, but ultimately so that the Lord Jesus Christ would be lifted up because of the joy that we have in him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you. So we see here in this poem what occasioned it was yet another time in David's life when he was on the run. Yet another time when he was under a great threat. Another time when he was fearing for his own life. And think about this man and what he experienced, especially before he came to the throne. Constantly on the run for his life. Not having a place that he could call home. Not having a place that he had comfort and security and peace and rest. 
And remember this, he had been promised by the Lord to be the next king on the throne. And it was a long time before he realized that promise and saw it come to pass. And all of these things had taken a toll on David to the point that he writes these words in this psalm. How long will you forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? How long will I suffer at the hands of my enemy? How long, how long, how long? You can see the lament in his voice. This phrase conveys the agony that he's experiencing in his own heart. Even the Hebrew words, Adadma, Adadma. He's crying out. And this prayer that he offers was not given in some nice church or a comfortable place, a beautiful, serene meadow. He's crying these words out probably in a cave. Or out in a deserted open field, cold, hungry, weary, confused, discouraged. And notice the questions that David asks, they aren't questions seeking information. Did you notice that these are cries from a despairing man? God, where are you? Nothing makes sense anymore. I feel abandoned and alone. I'm ready to die. Other men of God and Scripture have been in this same place. Job cried out, my spirit is broken, my days are extinguished, the grave is ready for me. Or there was Moses, he came to a point of great discouragement in his life when he said these words in Numbers 11, I alone am not able to carry all this people, it is too burdensome for me. So God, if you're going to deal this way with me, kill me at once. He was serious. Then there's Elijah Remember that wonderful victory he experienced at Mount Carmel when he defeated the prophets of Baal and, and uh, the prophets of Baal were removed and gotten rid of. And then right after that, Elijah goes into the wilderness and he's discouraged because Queen Jezebel and King Ahab were still on the throne and he knew what that meant. He knew that worship of Baal would still continue. And so he got into the desert, he sat uh, under a tree and he told God these words, it is enough, O Lord, take my life, I'm not any better than my father's. And then there's Paul. He faced much affliction. And at one point in 2 Corinthians 1, he said these words, We were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at a point where you just want to give up? You feel like God has ignored you, and you just want to die. I think many of us in this room have come to a place like that, or very close to it. Maybe you're there now. And you pray for relief, but no relief comes. You cry out for help, but all you hear is silence. A silence so deafening that it drowns out every thought but this. God is not listening. Now, if it hasn't happened yet, it probably will. Those times will come. And the question is this. What will you do when you face them? How will you deal with that discouragement? Will you give in? Will you slide down into despair and depression? Or by God's grace, will you climb out? Well, thankfully, we have Psalm 13, which shows us David's own experience of how he climbed out. In this psalm, we will see two responses that will take us from sighing to singing. And the first response is found in verses 1 to 4. 
And it is simply this, pray to God. Pray to God. Notice in these verses, David isn't talking to his fellow soldiers. He's not talking to his family. He's not speaking to some counselor or therapist. David here is not talking to the priest. Who is he speaking to in this psalm? Who is the the audience of these words? It's God himself, right? It's a prayer. These words are a prayer. And so in this we see that the, the first step for freedom from depression is to pray to God, is to cry out to God. Don't brood over your situation. Don't fret. Don't hold it in. Go to God and go to him first. A dear brother at our church always loves to say, prayer must be our first response, not our last resort. It must be our first response, not our last resort. But I know there are times that our feelings won't let us go there. But don't listen to your feelings. Pour out your heart to God. Express them to Him. Even if your prayers feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling, pound the ceiling harder. And in that pounding, in your prayer... There are two important characteristics that we see from David's example here. The first is pray to God honestly, and then secondly, pray to God fervently. Pray honestly and pray fervently. Let's look at the first point. Pray honestly. Notice, David asks God some pretty direct questions here, doesn't he? Some pretty bold questions. In fact, his first one is this, how long will you forget me, O Lord? Now that word forget, he's not talking about God's memory. The idea behind that word is the idea of of care or concern. It carries the idea of of a neglect. And David is saying here, God, you've hidden yourself from me. Don't you care? How long will you leave me alone? Instead of being on the throne, I'm here in this cave, wondering if I'm going to even live beyond today. And notice the beginning of verse 2. David asks the Lord, how long will I be left to take counsel in my soul? Do you know what he means by that? He's talking to himself. And that's the only person he's hearing right now. And in fact, he's keeping himself up, uh, up at night, keeping himself awake, trying to figure a way out of this, frustrated that nothing is working and God remains silent. David continues to let his feelings do the talking. And at the end of verse 2, He pleads, how long will his enemy have the upper hand? The more he thinks about his problems, the more he considers his situation, the more discouraged he gets, and the more depressed he gets. The walls are closing in on David. No relief. God is nowhere to be found. Things only seem to be getting worse. And so David despairs. And though David feels near death, Think about this. Even though he feels as God is not listening, even though he feels like God has hidden himself from him, even though he feels like he is alone, he still cries out to God. He still seeks God in prayer. And it's an honest prayer. In fact, almost brazen. I think if we had been standing next to David while he was praying these words, I think we would have been sliding over a little bit, just waiting for the lightning bolt to come down. I mean, these are provocative questions. These are Questions that that make us a little uncomfortable. But David here is expressing himself honestly. He's expressing how he feels. He wasn't putting together some flowery prayer. He spoke openly. He spoke honestly. And in fact, we see this often in Scripture. Many times when people are discouraged. I think of the prophet Habakkuk who said these words, How long, O Lord? 
there's another phrase again. Will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Or Asaph said in Psalm 79, We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord? There it is again. Will you be angry forever? Or in Psalm 88, the psalmist said these words, O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die for my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Brothers and sisters, these are broken souls being transparent before God. You know, C.S. Lewis, he lost his wife to cancer. And he called out to God for comfort in that moment, but felt no reply. And so he said these words, What can this mean? Why is God so present a commander in time of prosperity and so very absent in time of trouble? You see, these are real prayers from real people suffering through real problems and trials, looking for real answers, and so they pray honestly. And when I say Pray honestly. Let me just caution you. I'm not talking about irreverent prayer. I'm not talking about prayer that just vents your anger against God or impugns God or His character. But let your prayers be from the heart, honest, transparent. Did not Jesus Himself say on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's go back and consider those how long questions that David asks. How accurate were they? Were those theologically sound questions? How long will you forget me, God? How long will you hide your face from me? Don't you even care? Hebrews 13.5 has the answer to those questions where God says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Certainly David was wrong in his uh, theology here in a sense that that this tells us God does not abandon us. Hebrews 13 tells us God does not forsake us. In fact, we know Romans 8.35, which says, Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, right? So do we condemn David for his questions? Do we blast him for, for what he's saying here? Do we rebuke him for his wrong theology? That's what Job's friends did when Job was in despair. In fact, in Job 6, he says these words, For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend, so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? Job's saying here, look, I know I'm speaking foolishly. I, I know that, that I, what I'm saying here isn't exactly right, but I'm in pain. I'm suffering. I'm hurting. I need your kindness. Not your rebuke. You know, if someone comes to you and they are discouraged or distraught or even depressed, remember, the words they're speaking are coming from a raw emotion, from someone who is in great pain. They're probably not going to be theologically sound or accurate. So give them some room. Show them some empathy. There should be kindness from a friend. Sit with them. Listen to them. Pray with them. Weep with them. There will be time to fix the theology. Remember Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. Admonish the unruly. Help the weak. Encourage the faint-hearted. Be patient with all men. 
So we see from David's example here in verses 1 and 2 that we're to pray to God honestly. David also shows us in his example in verses 3 and 4 that we're to pray to God fervently. Pray to him fervently. Look with me at verse 3 where David pleads, consider, answer me. Look at me, God. Give attention to my situation. Don't let me die. Don't let my enemy be victorious over me. And in the Hebrew, these, these statements are these short, emphatic phrases that, that come just like one after the other after the other in rapid fire. It's, it expresses a zeal, a passion, a fervency, an earnestness. And as I was studying this psalm, it, it prompted me to ask myself, do I express the same kind of zeal in my prayers? How about you? Would you say that you pray with fervency, with earnestness? I'm reminded of Epaphras, that Paul said that he agonized in his prayers for the Colossians. He labored earnestly on their behalf. When was the last time that you agonized in prayer? When was the last time that you had such earnestness in your prayer, not just for yourself, but for others, for God's glory? You know what? I think sometimes God brings trials in our life to take us to the point where our prayers are real, where our prayers are honest, and where they are fervent. Sometimes we need difficulties and pain in our life in order to take us to a place where we go to our knees and cry out, God, help me! I can only depend on you. You're the only place that I can go. And here we must be reminded that prayer in and of itself is not what brings relief. When tragedies come, you know, you hear a lot of people just talk about, we need to pray. I remember in the United States when uh, 9-11 hit and the towers went down and the news reporters were going out interviewing people, a lot of people were talking about prayer. I was actually quite surprised. They would be saying things like, my prayers go out to those who have suffered, or we need to be praying, or prayer changes things, or prayer accomplishes much. A lot of these kinds of statements, people will say them in times of crisis, but we have to remember this. Prayer to Vishnu won't change anything. Prayer to Mary or Peter or to any of the saints won't help. Prayer to Reverend Moon or Muhammad or Allah or Mother Nature or God as you understand Him to be, none of these will bring help or assistance. And I want to state something very carefully here. So, so listen to me carefully. Don't quote me out of context later. Prayer does not change things. Now, before you throw me out, Pastor Mel, let me explain. Prayer does not change things. God, through prayer, changes things. You understand the difference? The triune God, the only God, the sovereign God of the universe, praying to Him is what will bring change and nothing else. Prayer alone does not matter. Prayer alone won't fix your situation. Prayer alone is not going to help. But prayer to God, the one who can do something about it, that will help. Jesus himself said these words in Matthew 6. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
you know, here we see the Gentiles were praying. They were praying a lot. Jesus says so himself. Many words that they offered. But here was the problem. They weren't praying to our Father who is in heaven. So our prayer must be to him. Amen? Amen? And that prayer must be fervent, whether we think God is listening or not. You know, Job went through among the greatest distresses that one could imagine. He suffered greatly, and he still said these words in Job 13. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. So brothers and sisters, don't give up praying no matter how you feel. Don't stop crying out to him, even if it seems like you're alone and he's not listening. I can remember a time in my life, um, one of the most discouraging times, my grandmother who really was like my mom. She had raised me in the early years of my life. She had suffered a stroke and was dying. And that same week, we got news that our youngest child who was still, uh, was still in the womb, that she was not expected to live. And I remember, I can still remember, even just talking about it, the emotions are, are coming back. I remember that night on my bed after receiving the news, my grandmother, my mother was dying. My baby was not expected to live. And I remember crying out to God, begging for help. I felt alone that night. But I cried out to God and I prayed honestly and I prayed fervently. And then I had to wait. Had to wait. And that's where we find David at the end of verse 4. He's poured out his heart. He's been transparent, honest, direct, fervent. But there's no immediate response from heaven, no change in his circumstances, no change in his feelings, really. David had bared his soul before the Lord, crying out for help. And you know what? If after doing that, he had stopped. If after doing that, he continued to wallow in his despair and his discouragement. If after that prayer, David had given up, then it would have been over for David. And I mean over. He says in his prayer, he talks about sleeping the sleep of death. He's at the bottom. And if verse 4 had been the end of his poem, it would have been the end of David. But notice there's a verse 5. And praise God, there's a verse 5. David here takes the next step. He, le he quits letting his feelings do the talking. He has talked to God. Now he's going to let God talk to him. And in these last two verses, we find the second response to gain freedom from depression. The first is pray to God. The second is this, preach to self. Preach to self. Pray to God and then preach to yourself. Preach truth to yourself. Take a look again with me at verse 5. David says this, But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Notice that first word there, but. But I. In the Hebrew, it's emphatic. It's literally this. But I myself, I have trusted. It's like David is crying out, he's speaking, he's just letting words flow from his heart, from his raw emotion, and then all of a sudden he catches himself. 
He, he grabs himself and takes himself aside and says, stop listening to your feelings. Don't get stuck on your emotions. Direct your attention to what is true. Focus your mind and your thoughts and your hearts on what is real, what is accurate. And as David preaches to himself in these two verses, he moves from helplessness to hopefulness. From depression to delight. From gloom to glee. From sighing to singing. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his book on depression. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself, he says. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? And finally it says this. You must turn on yourself. You must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. And that's exactly what we see David doing here in verses 5 and 6. He'd been listening to himself rather than talking to himself. And so David here preaches to himself and he preaches a simple three-point sermon to himself. He gives himself a instruction And David's first point in his sermon is this. Preach faith to God. Preach faith in God. Preach to yourself faith in God. The first statement that David gives in verse 5 is so important. In fact, it's the hinge upon which the psalm turns. Look there with me. He says, I have trusted in your loving kindness. And trust here means security, confidence, hope in relying upon, when those times of despair come, when those feelings and emotions begin to stir in our soul, when depression looms at our very doorstep, it is then that we have a choice. Will you trust God or not? Will you rely on Him or not? Will you hope in Him or not? During one of Martin Luther's dark nights of the soul, he spent three days in depression. And on the third day, his wife came downstairs dressed in funeral clothes. And Martin Luther asked her, who's dead? And she answered him, God. And then Martin Luther, he rebuked her saying, what do you mean, woman? God is dead. God cannot die. And then she said simply, well, the way you've been acting, I was sure that he had. She's just the woman Martin Luther needed. (laughs) You know, some of us, some people, may choose to deal with despair and discouragement by, by running to a substance, by running to food or entertainment, by running to pornography or immorality, by running to medications, by trying to escape go into their own little world and hoping the pain that will go away. And you know what? Satan will present and gladly presents a myriad of options. Satan gladly opens up 
his, his wallet, opens up his, his chest of opportunities, anything to keep you from the real solution, anything to keep you from reminding yourself that God can be trusted, anything to keep you from looking to God for hope, anything to keep you from relying on him, anything to keep you from trusting God. Spurgeon said, despondency is not a virtue. I believe it is a vice, and I am heartily ashamed of myself for falling into it. But I am sure there is no remedy for it like a holy faith in God. He's right. That's the solution. And you know, it's easy to have faith when the bills are paid. It's easy to have faith when there's plenty of money in our bank accounts. It's easy to have faith when our health is good, when our bellies are full, when there's no conflict, when the family is doing well. It's easy to have faith then. But a strong and lasting faith is forged upon the anvil of trials. A pure faith is found in the furnace of difficulty. A lasting trust in God is refined in the fires of suffering. In his book on depression, Ed Welch said, In depression, the new way of living is to believe and act on what God says rather than feel what God says. It's living by faith. In other words, when there is a dispute between what your feelings say and what Scripture says, Scripture wins. And again, I need to remind us that we're not just talking about faith in and of itself. We're not just talking about faith by itself. It's not faith in anything. No, the object of our faith is key, right? It's not just to have faith in something. There's only one thing, one person that we can have faith in and confidence, and that is God himself. Notice David says here, I have trusted in your loving kindness, God. I trust in your chesed, your, your compassion, your mercy, your, your tenderness, your empathy, your steadfast love. And I, I wonder, David doesn't say it here, but, but I wonder if in this moment, if some of the memories of God's acts of loving kindness came to his mind. I wonder if his memory went back to the time that he fought Goliath. I wonder if... In his mind, as he was thinking these words and God's loving kindness in his life, the, those times when, he, he, when a bear or a lion had come to attack his sheep and God had strengthened him to defend himself. I wonder what he had been thinking about, what he had brought to mind. But David here shows us by his own example, we need to reflect, we need to bring to mind, we need to remember what God has done in our lives and what he has done in the lives of others. We need to remember his loving kindness. In fact, this is what Jeremiah did while in the midst of great discouragement. He wrote in the book of Lamentations, a book, by the way, which is full of lament, which expresses the discouragement of the prophet as he's reflecting on what was happening to his people and what his people had brought upon themselves. And so he writes this entire book of Lamentations. And he says in Lamentations chapter 3, these words... This I recall to my mind. Notice here, in the midst of his discouragement, Jeremiah says, I'm going to remember truth here. I need to recall what is true to my mind. But I myself, he says, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's, what? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
Brother Augie, we should sing that. Oh, we already did. Well, it came from this passage. Your compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Notice here he's preaching to himself. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the person who seeks him, it is good he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. I love that prayer, especially understanding the context in which he gives it. This was a man who was struggling. This was a man who was discouraged. This was a man who was depressed. And so he says, I recall these things to my mind. I have to preach to myself and remind myself God can be trusted. God is good. He is compassionate. So to get to the path of freedom from depression, you must preach to yourself, trust in God. Who else is trustworthy? Only Him, ultimately. We have to keep reminding ourselves to trust Him no matter how we feel. We're so prone to let our experiences, we're so prone to let what we see, we're so prone to let what we feel cloud our judgment. But listen, God can be trusted. He is in control. He knows what He's doing. And His love for us is infinite. So preach to yourself trust in Him. Secondly, preach to yourself joy in your salvation. Preach joy in your salvation. Look at verse 5 where David says these words, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Which is interesting because back in verse 2, he says he has sorrow in his heart all the day. And yet here he makes a resolve, my heart shall rejoice. But again, it's not joy in and of itself. It's based on something. It's joy in what? Joy in your salvation, he says. And I think there he's not just speaking of the deliverance from his circumstances. No, he's still in the cave or wherever he is under the threat of his life. I think he is speaking there of eternal salvation he's reflecting on the fact that he is God's child and he rejoices in that David here is looking beyond his present circumstance to an ultimate deliverance and that's what brings his heart joy and from a post cross perspective we could say this David was preaching the gospel to himself and that is what we need to do preach the gospel to yourself meaning preach and remind yourself of the great truths of the gospel not just going to heaven, the gospel is so much more than that. The gospel, in it we remember we've been forgiven. In it we remember we've been redeemed. In it we remember we've been freed from slavery to sin. In it we remember we've been freed from Satan's power and control. In the gospel, we remember that we've been transformed. Yes, you can say amen to that. We've been transformed. In the gospel, and I don't think we reflect on this enough, but in the gospel, Romans 5 says that we've been given the righteousness of Christ. So when we stand before God, He sees us as if we never sinned, and He sees us as if we lived the life of His Son who never sinned. In the gospel, we have a future hope. In fact, 1 Peter 1 describes this in detail. Please turn there with me. It's not up on the screen. Oh. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who 
according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you may suffer You have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In those words, we have the the flower that has grown and blossomed out of the seed that was planted by David. David simply said, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And here, Peter expands upon that. Where he says, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of distresses and difficulties, we have a certain future hope. And so he blesses God. He's speaking to a people that were undergoing persecution and suffering. And he says, we can still bless God because we are protected by him and he will bring us into glory. What an encouragement. What a hope. And that's what David preached to himself. It's what Job preached to himself in Job chapter 19. And again, think of his situation. Here's a man who everything had been taken from him. His possessions, his ten children, his health, his dignity. Even his wife said, curse God and die. His friends come to him and he's in the midst of that misery and they say, Job, this is all your fault. Here's a man who's broken and discouraged, and he's sitting on an ash heap, which is the the local dump, the local refuse hill. And he's sitting there, and he says these words, even in the midst of that, as for me, I know my Redeemer lives. And at last, at the last, he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet with my flesh I shall see God. He had that future hope. Even in the worst of conditions, the worst of situations, something we probably will never experience, he preached the gospel to himself. I know my Redeemer lives, despite what I see, despite what I feel. That's what we have to say. That's what we have to remind ourselves of. This is the gospel we need to preach to ourselves. Beloved, the gospel contains riches beyond our imagination. And so when you are down, when you are depressed, when you are discouraged, when you are tempted to feel that way, direct yourself to the amazing truths of the gospel. Read Ephesians 1 over and over. Read 1 Peter 1 over and over. And as you meditate deeply on not only your future hope, but also your present blessing, And what God has done and continues to do and will do, that is what will bring true joy. That is what will produce joy in the heart that once was saying, my heart is sorrowful all the day, but I will rejoice in your salvation. Now, it goes without saying that to preach the gospel to yourself, for that to bring joy, that will only happen if you believe it. Do you believe the gospel. Have you truly put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you forsaken all, desired to turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ and Christ alone 
for your salvation. Acts 4 says there is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. There is no other name in heaven which has been given among us. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Have you truly given your life to him? There's no eternal hope at all. These words that I read from Peter, this joy in your salvation, you can't have that if you don't know him. You cannot have that if you've not understood that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that, that there is hell awaiting for those who have rebelled against God, but that he offers heaven, he offers eternal life, he offers these wonderful gifts of salvation to any who would put their trust in him, to any who would forsake their old life and give their allegiance to Christ himself and Christ alone. To any who would say, I cannot earn God's favor, it it is only a gift that is given by faith. Have you done that? Have you done that? The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That eternal hope that David had, that eternal hope that Job had, that eternal hope that Peter spoke of can be yours. And that is what you're going to need to turn to and rely on in those moments in life when you feel like dying. In those moments in life when you just want to give up. You know what? The ultimate answer to depression is this. I can sum it up in one word. The ultimate answer to depression is Jesus. I mean... The ultimate answer to everything is Jesus. That may sound simplified, but it is not. That word, Jesus Christ the Lord, contains all that we need in dealing with depression. All that we need in dealing with this life. All that we need in dealing with our sin. Jesus Christ the Lord. I love how that great hymn says it so well. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth, the discouragements, the trials, the difficulties, the pain, the suffering, the depression, the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Preach the gospel to yourself. That is what will get you out of depression. David continues his three-point sermon First he says, preach faith in God, preach joy and salvation. And then lastly, he says, preach to yourself praise to God. Preach praise to God. Look at the end of verse 6. David expresses, makes an interesting statement. Here he moves from speaking directly to the Lord to sort of this last statement where he makes these words, I will sing to the Lord for he has dealt bountifully with me. Now that's an interesting statement. David says, an interesting resolve on David's part. This tells us that singing praise to God not only brings him joy, it is also the path to our joy. Praise not only lifts the heart in good times, but also in bad. After a long bout of depression because of his health, Martin Luther wrote a hymn. Perhaps you have heard of it. It is called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That came following a time of discouragement in his life. I mentioned to you previously when I preached on Psalm 46, Horatio Spafford, 
after losing his three daughters to, and they were drowned in the ocean, he wrote that amazing hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And even here, Psalm 13 is a song. Do you notice the first words in the introduction? For the choir director. This was a, a song to be sung. Singing is a remedy for discouragement. And again, I must say, just like prayer in itself is not the answer, just like faith in itself is not the answer, singing in and of itself is not the answer. It's not just, I feel down. Just start humming a happy tune. I feel better now. No, that's not what David is saying here at all. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It's not singing in and of itself that's the answer. It is singing to God and singing about God. Just as David does here. Thomas Watson said these words, A good Christian is not a grave to bury God's mercies, but a temple to sing his praises. I like that. A good Christian is not a grave to bury God's mercies, but a temple to sing his praises. And you know, this last point of David's is such a helpful and practical one. Because when you're discouraged, bring to your mind an encouraging hymn. In fact, have a hymnal with you, if possible, or, or something that, that you can sing to that remind yourself a song about God, a song directed to God. We have hymnals in our car so that we can sing to the Lord. We have hymnals in our home so that we can sing to the Lord. So play a song. If, you, if you're at a point where you really don't feel like singing at all, but you know that this is one of the things you need to do to help you and that you need to preach to yourself, I will sing, I will sing. So listen to a song that focuses your attention on God. Load up your iPhone or your Spotify playlist or, or whatever device you might have with music on it. Load it up not just with any song, but songs that are directed to Him. Songs that are about Him. Songs that are about what He has done. Just as David said, the reason he's going to sing to the Lord is because God has dealt bountifully with him, has given him abundant goodness in his life. And I would also encourage you to consistently be here, singing with God's people. Now sometimes maybe you come and you just don't feel like singing, but, but you know, listening to brothers and sisters around you who are singing, expressing praise, and the folks up here who are doing a wonderful job in leading us in that way, it stirs our heart. It focuses our attention on what is true. So whatever you do, no matter how you feel, come here. So one, you can hear God's word, and two, you can hear music to him and about him. Much more to say. But let me just close with a reminder, when discouragement comes, learn from David's example. Don't listen to your heart. Preach to it. Pray to God. Don't allow your emotions and feelings to drown out what is true. Bring your struggles to God honestly and fervently. Remind yourself to trust God. Remind yourself to dwell on who He is and what He has done. Remind yourself to meditate on the gospel. Make a resolve to sing songs that are directed to Christ. And brothers and sisters, I don't mean this morning to give the impression from that this psalm is like some pill. 
Feeling down? Read Psalm 13 three times and you'll feel better. That's not at all what's going on here. Overcoming depression is more of a process than an event. It may take some time to move from sighing to singing. It may take time. You'll need to practice these truths over and over. You'll need to to make this psalm part of what you remind yourself of and meditate on every morning, every day. You'll need to practice it over and over. And you may have relapses, but brothers and sisters, don't give up. Don't give up. As we close, if you could bow your heads, let me just prayerfully read to you these words from Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Oh, what a profound truth, O Lord. You did not spare your own son, but delivered him up while we were your enemies. While, as we sung earlier, we were a rebel to your will. While we would have never chosen you, you still sent your son and delivered him up. How will you not also give us freely all things and we understand, Lord, that, that in your desire to make us like your Son, there will be trials and difficulties in our lives. There will be suffering. There will be challenges. And Lord, in those times, we will be tempted to be discouraged. We will be tempted to be depressed. But, oh Lord, we do not want to present a powerless gospel And so, Lord, in those times, in those moments, we ask, God, in your mercy, bring to our minds this psalm. Bring to our minds what David has taught us here from his own life. Remind us, O Lord, to pray to you fervently and honestly. Remind us, O Lord, to preach truth to ourselves about your loving kindness, about your gospel, and that we would sing to you despite how we feel, not because we're seeking to manipulate our emotions, but because we need to move ourselves to to what is true. Oh God, do a work among us. And I pray, Lord, if there are any here that are discouraged, that God, you would encourage their hearts today. Lord, that you would bring others alongside of them. I pray for us, Lord, for any here who know someone who is in discouragement, that you would use us in their lives to come alongside them, to speak the words of this psalm, to listen, to empathize, to help. We thank you that we do have hope in your Son, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.